Emotions are contagious in a team, in a group, and they're most powerfully contagious from the person in the room who has the highest status. It's typically the leader. People pay most attention to that person and put most importance on what that person says or does. And it turns out, for example, that on a team, if a team leader is in a really upbeat mood, people on the team catch that mood, performance goes up. If the leader of a team is bummed out, angry, anxious, whatever, people on the team catch that mood, performance goes down. So what that says is that the emotions of a leader are part of the toolkit of leadership. If you, if you know how to manage your own emotions uh, and you understand how to use them, it can be very powerful. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you, what got you there? Today on the podcast, I sit down with Daniel Goldman. And for those of you unfamiliar with Dr. Goldman, I mean, where do I even begin? Dr. Goldman is, is one of those authors who's just had such a profound impact on my last decade of life with some of his books, such as Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ. Uh, another one of his books, which is incredible, and I think a lot of the listeners of the show will appreciate, is Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence. And then his most recent book, Why We Meditate, The Science and Practice of Clarity and compassion. And what we're going to do during this conversation is I explore a lot of these topics around emotional intelligence, what it is, what are the pillars of it, how we can actually cultivate it over time. And then around focus, how do we generate and develop our ability to focus? And then a lot of what Dr. Goldman has been able to do and accomplish over the years, he attributes to his meditation practice. So we're going to dive into meditation, what he does, how we can center ourselves a bit more, and then what meditation actually does to the brain. And so if you want a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation with someone who has done an incredible amount of scientific work, but also their own personal work, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Daniel Goldman. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I put together something really special just for the listeners of this podcast. Now, after all the years studying, learning from, and getting to coach some of the world's most successful people, I've taken the 13 most impactful lessons and compiled them, and I want to send you those 13 lessons right now, and all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons, and I will send you some of the most impactful lessons I've learned from people like Disney CEO Bob Iger, the great basketball player Michael Jordan, and so many more. So if you want that right now, all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons. I have just opened up exclusive access and a limited number of spots to my online community called Momentum Makers. Now, Momentum Makers is your ultimate destination for personal growth, self-improvement, and ways to live a more meaningful life. Now, you guys know me as the host of this podcast, but for more than a decade, I've been working at the intersection of elite performance, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Now, as an executive coach, former professional athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host, I've been working with and learning from some of the world's most successful people, and I've been using that knowledge to help 
help other people untap their potential and live their best life. Now, that's why I built the Momentum Makers community. I could not find anything else like this out there in the world. Now, for the price of a book each month, this is what you're going to get. You are going to get a treasure trove of wisdom. You get access to our exclusive masterclass community calls. So imagine getting to join one of these podcast guests, one of these true game changers or titans of industry, and you get to ask them specific questions to help you out. You also are going to get my weekly coaching videos, my tools that I use with my executives, things like my ultimate productivity planner, and then you're also going to get our monthly community calls to discuss ideas and grow together. If that wasn't all, you also get access, unlimited access, to all of my 50-plus book recaps and notes. Remember, guys, spots are limited, so join today. And the way to do that, all you have to do is go to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash momentum dash makers. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash momentum dash makers, or just click the link below. Dr. Goldman, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. No, this is my absolute pleasure. And and I'm always intrigued about how people got started, like the early days. And looking back over all the years, was there a moment for you that kind of opened up your eyes and was an early inflection point that maybe at the time you didn't realize its significance, but now being able to look back over the years, it had a profound impact on you? Probably there have been a couple of them on the way. I don't know that there was a singular moment, but I would say that uh, one of the things that's informed my work was my mentor in graduate school, David McClellan, who was looking at the competencies that uh, you found in star performers that you didn't find in the average. That was something I circled back to after reading. This was another uh, singular moment after reading the first article ever called Emotional Intelligence, which appeared in 1990 by Peter Salve. Uh, he was then a junior faculty at Yale. He's now the president of Yale University. Uh, and his graduate student, Jack Mayer. And I thought, wow, emotional intelligence, what a great phrase, because it sounds just totally contradictory. Emotions and intelligence has never been put together, but it really means being intelligent about emotions. And then that catalyzed my thinking to a great extent for the book, Emotional Intelligence. Has there been something for you that's kind of been at the center of all the work you do, something you've been in in search of all these years? Well, um, you know, I have a whole sidetrack, which is kind of below the radar uh, in meditative practice. My first book was about meditation. And I see lots of cross connections between uh, being at your best, whether it's in lacrosse or any sport or in business, uh, with your ability to concentrate and focus, which in meditation is, in essence, attention training. So that's been one of the things that has been a theme for me, no matter what I've done. How did you get even introduced to meditation? I I know you've been doing it for a number of years Uh, when it wasn't quite as popular as it is today. Yeah, well, when I was an undergrad uh, in college, uh, at the time I was at Berkeley and I uh, was, uh, I thought, pretty uptight, frankly. And so I heard that there was somebody (laughs) teaching meditation. I thought, well, I'll try that. And actually it helped me quite a bit, helped me relax. Uh, So that was my first motive and my first experience in meditation. Has there been anything over all those years that you've continued 
like your practice in, in meditation? Uh, well, since those days, I pretty much have started every day with meditation, no matter what else I'm doing that day. What, what is your meditation practice now? Hard to uh, explain in words, but it stemmed from uh, practice that I did in India when I was a graduate student. I spent 15 months in India on a traveling fellowship. Uh, and it was uh, pretty rudimentary. It was focusing on the breath. And now, you know, mindfulness is everywhere. It's in schools, it's in businesses. And they invariably start with the same meditation on the breath. So I would say that what I do now is an extrapolation of that practice. Your most recent book, you started off with just a phrase that it really connected for me. It's grounded body, open heart, pure mind. Mm, mm. What does this mean to you? Well, uh, the book you're talking about is why we meditate. And I wrote that book with a Tibetan Lama, a friend and a teacher, Sokni Rinpoche. And uh, he talks about the need to really pay attention to mind, to spirit, to heart, to body. Uh, and one of the things that appealed to me about the kind of Tibetan approach was that it, it helps you ground yourself in the subtle sensations in your body, uh, which is something that's often ignored. You know, we're very heady in our culture and our thinking and in our practice. So I, I like that quite a bit. Have you found that the more inner work you've done, the more stillness you've gotten to, you've seen yourself expanding outwards in terms of deep human connection with others? That's an elegant answer to the question. Uh, if I say yes, is that sufficient? But I would also say it's a little more complicated than just being still and more open because you don't want to use meditation practice or anything, drinking, whatever it may be, as a kind of bypass, you know, not paying attention to what the emotional habits you have or what you're listing and the people around you. Uh, in other words, emotions are internal, but they're also interactive. And so stillness can occur in, in a couple of ways, but one I don't really recommend, which is being still to defend yourself from upsetting feelings, emotional feelings. And the other is being still in the midst of those feelings, which lets you deal with them. I think that's much better. Is there a starting place for that to be able to be able to handle those feelings as they're coming at us? Is there a place uh, yes. we have to be prior to that? Yeah, I think it helps to be able to focus and keep your focus. So I'd say, a basic training and attention, no matter how you do it, is going to help with uh, dealing with your turbulent emotions. It's also going to help you in a game. Uh, it helps you in business. It helps you in whatever you do, being able to keep your attention on the task at hand. Yeah, your book, Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence, is, it was a foundational pillar for me. Um, oh. in helping to understand the impact, the influences of focus, um, how to channel it, how to use it. Um, so I'll have that linked up in the show notes. But I'm wondering for you specifically, you mentioned emo emotional intelligence, just it connected with you for some reason. And what specifically all those years ago, I think you said 1990, was it that, that really wanted you to explore this to the depth you've gone to? Well, at the time I had 
uh, in a sense, left psychology as my profession. I was a science journalist at the New York Times covering psychology. That's why I read this article, which was in a very obscure journal, a little red journal, but that was my job, you know, see if there's something really newsworthy uh, in, in these obscure journals that were not so obscure. So uh, the idea of being intelligent about emotion connected with me because my training had been in clinical psychology, my graduate work, and that I didn't find satisfying because it was very reductive. It was looking, it was trying to categorize people, pigeonhole them in a diagnostic category. But then the idea of being intelligent about emotions opened it up. It meant that, you, you know, how intelligent you were emotionally had to do with a whole other end of the spectrum, which was how you were aware of your emotions, how you were able to manage the turbulent ones, are you able to sense emotions in other people and put that all together for highly effective relationships? That's know, emotional intelligence. Well, I know you've gone incredibly far in emotional intelligence and understanding its positive impact. I would just love if you could share some of the, the interesting insights you've uncovered over these years around the impact emotional intelligence can have. Well, I just finished a book about that, you know, we started uh, looking at emotional intelligence about 30 years ago. And at first, critics were complaining, hey, there's not really any data. And I agree, there was almost no data back in the day. But there's been a gradual and steady accumulation of research, which I'm summing up in a book that'll come out probably in a year. Uh, and that research makes a very strong case that uh, when we're at our optimal best, no matter what it is we're doing, we're applying emotional intelligence and that people individually, say in the workplace or entrepreneurs are really at their best when they're more emotionally intelligent, when they're able to tune into themselves, manage themselves, know what's going on with the other person. Uh, leaders for sure, the data is really strong that this is the key leadership ability. It doesn't matter if you have you know, a high position in the organizational chart. It's do people want to work for you or not? Do they like you or do they hate you? Do you are you the kind of boss people listen to, look forward to uh, being with, or are you one that they dread? And it, that really comes down to your emotional intelligence. And then it turns out that organizations as a whole or teams as a whole can be more emotionally intelligent and the more emotionally intelligent they are the more productive and effective they are i i think it's one of the helpful things that you've brought up in your work is that this is a skill that can be cultivated it can be developed we can improve with it over time um I, well this is where yeah that, that's quite interesting because i think one of the big mistakes that's made is trying to spend time when you hire making sure someone is emotionally intelligent. Uh, it's very hard to do that in the hiring. I think it makes more sense to train for it because mm. emotional intelligence, unlike IQ, can be increased in, at any point in life. And there are very good methods. I've got uh, a training program uh, online. You maybe will put in your show notes, the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course. Uh, and it takes people through the competencies that we find in outstanding performers, outstanding leaders, and helps them get better 
at what they want to improve on or what they feel they need to improve on. But this is the good news, really, is that it's something that you can learn. It's, uh, it's a skill that's learnable and improvable at any point, any point. Yeah, you have some tremendous resources on your website, danielgoleman.info. That'll be linked up. But I'm wondering, what have you uncovered are some of the biggest barriers to helping people develop that emotional intelligence? I think the biggest barrier is blind spots. People who, who think, oh, I don't need that. You know, there's, there's, I don't have any limitations in this. I'm really good at it. But when you ask the people around them, you think, oh, my God, you know, this guy is awful. She's terrible. Uh, but they don't realize it. That is probably the biggest obstacle is not being motivated because you think you're tremendous and you're not. Yeah. Uncovering those blind spots, it's, it's funny. I, I know you've worked as well a lot in the finance world. Um, so we've had Howard Marks on, manages $140 billion, And I said, what's the most important thing being a great investor? And the same exact thing that the Delphic Oracle said two thousands of years ago. He said, know thyself. And, oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And, and so I'm wondering for you, what have been some of the, the things that have been most helpful for you to develop that self-awareness, which is one of the foundational pillars of emotional intelligence? Well, this is one of the reasons I like meditation every day. Yeah because you're basically tuning into yourself. You're tuning out the world around you and just being with what comes up. And that is uh, probably the most direct path to self-awareness, know thyself. So that I would say that that's been a real uh, important practice for me. What has most changed about the time you spend in your meditation practice over the years? Probably um, what has not changed is that uh, the kinds of thoughts that come up. I mean, our brain is wired to think, to have a stream of consciousness. I think what might have changed is how much I get sucked into those thoughts. Oh, go further. I, th I think it's less and less. And, I, and that really is very freeing because we're going to think all kinds of things, self-doubt, hopes, plans, whatever it might be, memories. But there's something more. The freedom is in being able to let go. And I think that's what happens when you train attention is you, you know, if, you, if you're in the middle of a game and you're upset by what your girlfriend said to you last night, it takes your, uh, you know, it's a distraction. It's not that you don't want to deal with what she said at some point, but not during the game. And we're all in one game or another. And the ability to let go of those thoughts, which is something that gets stronger and stronger with practice, I think is crucial to keeping that focus that helps you be at your best. Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode. But before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast. And my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course. And you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Dr. Goldman, how have you approached over the years this letting go process uh, 
of the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations. I'm asking because you're someone who's who's accomplished so much. So I'm wondering how oh. that gets done without that that you know that that internal gripping that to strive. I'm not for saying I'm not saying don't strive, don't plan. You need to be motivated. You need to have goals, but not while you're trying to pay attention to something else. Okay, that's the simple point. Yeah, yeah. it has a time, it has a place, and it's helpful, but it's not helpful all the time in every place. Speaking of med- or motivation, you're you're someone who just seems to have a really naturally high set point, right? That internal motivation. I think you called it deeply embedded desire to achieve for the sake of achievement. Oh, ha- have you seen that, or do you feel that's something that just naturally comes with different people? Well, the um, the ability to achieve your goals, this goes back to David McClellan's work, can be trained and boosted. And in fact, entrepreneurs generally have a mindset which is very goal-oriented, but they're also very interested in feedback and in learning to do better constantly. This is what the research shows. And people can be helped to think that way. It's a particular mindset of achievement. However, this is really interesting. I have a friend who's a coach for C-suite executives. And she said, everyone who got to the C-suite has a very high achievement you know, orientation. That's what got them there. But if they don't also have empathy at that point, they're going to be a terrible leader. So I would say achievement is crucial for getting to where you want to go, but empathy uh, seasons that or mellows that or, or lets you then help other people get there. You need to tune into the people around you. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering about that, that natural internal drive. And I don't, I don't necessarily just mean for success to get to the C-suite. I, I mean, even there, there's people who are just internally driven to, to help and give back. But then mm-hmm. I feel like there's a, another set of people that it just seems like that internal drive for anything doesn't seem to be to be bubbling or coming to the surface. H- have you seen this in all, all your oh, years of work? I see. So you're saying some people may be very motivated by an ethical r- radar or rudder that want means that they want to help other people. Some people just want to like start a company that becomes a unicorn. You know, your goal is determined by your value set. But whether or not you're motivated uh, is a different question. And in fact, there are methodologies to help people who are unmotivated get motivated. And it's used a lot in addiction work. You know, alcoholics, drug addicts uh, aren't particularly motivated to change. But you can help them prepare to change. And one of the ways that's done is through what's called motivational interviewing, where you talk to a person and help them articulate what it is they care about. I have a friend, George Kohlreiser, who's now a leadership trainer in Switzerland, but uh, George started out his career as a psychologist uh, working with police and going on domestic calls, which were usually, uh, she's being beaten up by her husband. And in one call, uh, the, the cops came in and the guy was holding a knife to his wife's throat. And George convinced the guy to let her go and use him as the hostage. So there he is with a knife to his throat. And he 
was able to start talking to this guy person to person by asking one question, which was, how will you want your children to remember you? And that broke, that totally broke through to this guy. And then George could form a relationship with him. He finally ended up giving himself up. Uh, but I think what was crucial was finding that one motive, the driver that determined or that would get to uh, what makes this guy tick. Hmm. And we each have our drivers. And I think that knowing what they are and using them to get where we want to go is absolutely important. What comes to mind for you as one of your drivers? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think there's a, some combination of wanting to do well, which probably came from my parents, you know, uh, wanting me to do well. Just right there, pause. Think about the difference between when your kid comes home from school, you say, how'd you do on the test? That's the usual way right, of thinking about it versus uh, who were you kind to today? It's a totally different lens on, on life on a day. So usually uh, parents urge their kids to do well to achieve. And I think that was one of the markers for me. The other is I think I like to think that the work I do helps people. So it's a combination of wanting to reach that goal, wanting to achieve and wanting to help people. Well, I can certainly attest to the, the positive impact it's had on my life. Do, do you feel that underlying all of the work you've done, it's been trying to solve your own internal issue first, mm. and that's what inspired you to go deep on these topics? That's a really good psychoanalytic question. I have to ponder that for about a year. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll circle back next year then. But, but you were talking about some, some of the questions your friend had used um, that, that really cuts at the core of people. So I'm wondering, what are some of those questions when you're starting out trying to strengthen the emotional intelligence of leaders within a company? What are you doing in those beginning stages to help cultivate oh. them? Well, I, I don't do a lot of that work, but it's interesting. You're saying, how would you get to a person's motives, mm -hmm. whoever that person may be. And I th think uh, that there's, a, there's actually a series of questions along the lines of whose opinion matters to you? What do you think they, those people that matter to you, want to see you do? Uh, you know, is that what you're striving for? I think questions along those lines. Because we all have a kind of inner audience for our lives that comes from, you know, uh, the people that matter to us. And you want to, uh, in a sense, please those inner observers. Hmm. And th that speaks to your motivational system. Have you found for you, those inner observers, they they've quieted down over the years? Hmm. I don't know if they've quieted down. They may have changed over the years. What does the change look like? Well, I, I think that uh, I've become less self-interested in my motivation and more interested in the impacts that my work has, or the, I would say whatever good it does, if it does any good at all, uh, is more motivating to me now than formerly. Hmm. And also, you know, 
I was in the uh, early days of bringing meditation to the West, to modern life. And I think that has always uh, stayed with me as a uh, something that I've wanted to bring to fruition. And emotional intelligence probably in some deep level is a different way of talking about the same set of human attributes that uh, you find in, uh, in meditative traditions. For, for you studying and, and spending time with those Eastern systems, uh, mm. besides meditation, what, what are those other, let's call them 2,600 year old practices or systems of psychology uh-huh. that, that you really feel people should be attuned to? Well, one that um, modern research has shown actually is very effective is called the circle of caring where you widen the uh, range of people you care about. And I'll tell you how it goes. Please. Can we do that on your podcast? I would, I would love this. Um, the instructions are very simple. You might close your eyes or not as, as you prefer, but you want to tune out of whatever's around you and tune in to the people in your life you're grateful to, people who have helped you along. I know might be a parent or a caretaker or a teacher or a mentor. And keep these people in mind, people you're actually grateful to, and wish them silently. May you be healthy, may you be happy, uh, may you be safe, may you be free from uh, problems and troubles, may you have a life that thrives. And you do that for a little while with people you really uh, feel uh, appreciative toward and then you do it toward yourself may i be safe happy healthy may i be have a life free of troubles and problems may i have a life of ease may i thrive and you wish that for yourself silently and then you bring to mind people you really care about the people you love the most in your life here your partner, your family, your friends, whoever it may be. And you make the same wishes for them. May may you all be safe and happy and healthy, have a life free of troubles and problems and life of ease. May you thrive. And then just people you know, people in your vicinity, people in your workplace, whatever, acquaintances. Make the wish for them. May they be safe, happy, healthy, and so on. You do that silently in your mind. And then everyone in your region, you know, in, in all directions and the whole circumference around you, wherever that may be, may be safe, happy, healthy, thrive, and so on. And then you make that wish for everyone everywhere around the world. May everyone be safe, happy, healthy, have a life of ease, and thrive. And that's basically the practice, but it, the research is really interesting. It shows that doing this uh, makes people more likely to help other people, more likely to give to a charity, more likely to help someone in need. In other words, it works. It makes people more caring. Uh, and it starts almost immediately. This is really interesting. It's like the, the brain and the heart are primed or prepared to be warm-hearted to want to help other people. Uh, we, we lose that somewhat, I think, in our school years when we get very competitive. 
we might bring that into our, our work life, our business life. But if you ask people, and I've done this around the world, tell me about the boss you loved the most and the boss you hated the most. And this caring element is always one of the things that comes up. Dr. Goldman, you said you think this is something we lose a lot of times in the schooling. Do you think this is something we lose or something we have to develop over time? I think kids start out feeling this way. I, I saw a little film made by a, a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, and it's shown to toddlers, you know, six months old, two years old, and it shows a little triangle struggling up a hill, and then a mean square comes and pushes it down. And then that triangle is trying to go up the hill again, and a really helpful circle pushes it up, gives it a boost. And then the kid is given the choice of playing with a square, a triangle, or a circle. They always choose the circle. Hmm. In other words, kids resonate with that kind of compassion from the beginning. My a friend of mine at the University of Wisconsin, Richard Davidson, has a program in kindness for preschoolers. And he's done a lot of assessments and he, find, he finds that they really like that topic and feel, uh, you know, makes sense to them until they start going to school. Then they get competitive with each other. Think about it, yeah. you know, try to remember back to what it was like to be in like the reading group that was just average instead of the top reading group or when you're in third or fourth grade to get a good or bad grade on the math test. It really matters to kids. And so uh, I think that it that achievement drive, which in some ways is very helpful, may uh, overcome or cover over the natural tendency to care. Yeah. Dr. Goldman, this is of extreme interest to me. I have a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old. Um, Interesting. So I, yeah. I get the pleasures of seeing that beautiful outward uh -huh. love and expansion every day. And, and I've seen, and I could be wrong on this, a shift in you and more of a focus in the youth um, in, in programs around social emotional learning. Um, where do, were you yeah. about to say something? Uh, well, ask the question and then I'll say it. <laughs> well, well, you brought up a, a beautiful question earlier. You said in most households, it's kind of like, what did you, what did you score on the test today as opposed to how kind were you? Something like that. And so I'm wondering, someone with the amount of, of intelligence you have and that, that wealth of knowledge, what oh, can we be doing at home with our children? Sure. Well, I, I think it's, it's, more, it's not an either or. It's not how did you do on the test or who, who were you kind to or who was kind to you today. It's in both and. Yeah. Remember, emotional intelligence is a range of human capacities. Self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling and why and how it impacts what you're doing. That's the first part. Then using that information to manage your upsetting emotions better. And if you have a two and a half year old and a four and a half year old, you know they're on a learning curve for this, how to manage their upsets. That's every kid needs to learn that. Um, do you know about the marshmallow test? Do you remember that? I'm familiar with it, but please uh, expand on it. Well, so it, any, it was done with, uh, done with four-year-olds. I, I don't recommend trying this at home, but it was done in a lab at Stanford. And uh, one by one, four-year-olds are brought in. They're in the preschool there. 
and they sat down at a little table and big juicy marshmallows put in front of them and the experimenter says to the kid you can have this now if you want but if you wait till I run an errand you can have two then then she leaves the room that poor kid is left staring at the marshmallow so about a third of the kids grab it and gobble it down on the spot and another third wait the endless who knows how long till the experimenter comes back they get two the ability that this test is called cognitive control cognitive control really matters in life it's the ability to put off a distraction or an impulse and favor what you're trying to do right now uh, the important task at hand and it matters in everything we do in adult life and it turns out if you have better cognitive control you'll live longer you'll be healthier uh, you'll make more money all of these things have been found by research in your adult years so cognitive control is one of the things that you want to help your kids learn how do you do it every time you say you know finish your dinner then you have dessert do your homework then you can play with your xbox whatever it may be uh, you're teaching cognitive control it happens in the course of life but it's very important for every self-mastery uh, competence and there are many many uh, which i've talked about in in my books and in this course that I mentioned to you. Then there's empathy, being able to tune into other people. This is really important for getting along with everyone in your life. If you're a leader, it's absolutely crucial that you be able to sense where people are at. And there are three kinds of empathy. There's cognitive empathy. I know how you think. I can get your perspective. There's emotional empathy. I know how you feel. Uh, and those are really important. But the third kind is called empathic concern. And it's independent of those two. It's caring about the person. It's like a parent loves a kid. Kid may have a tantrum, he still loves the kid. So being able to be concerned about someone and let them know that uh, is a form of empathy that's crucial in a friendship, in an uh, intimate relationship, family and in business and uh you know and with your employees with your peers whoever it may be it's always going to matter and you put all of that together for relationship skills that's the fourth part of emotional intelligence hmm. so you've mentioned self-awareness we have the self-regulation we have the motivation we've got the empathy and the social skills there uh, i'm intrigued by what you were just saying around empathy and I'm, I'm wondering what this does for the dynamics in the team bond. I know over the years, we've heard a lot of information around psychological oh. safety and trust. And I'm just wondering what this does around those elements. So people feel belonging, that they feel connected, they feel part of the group. That's exactly what happens. That the more empathic people within a team or within a group are, the more they sense how other people are doing and act on that. You know, you seem a little anxious today. Can we help you? Or maybe you don't need to be the point person for what we're doing. Uh, that's empathy in action. Uh, the more people do that, the more people in a team or in a group feel a sense of belonging, psychological safety, that you can be yourself. You can bring your whole self to the group, to the team, and be accepted. And that makes people trust. It, it, it bonds people in a group. So it's really important 
in any group, in any team. Speaking of teams and groups, one of the things we see is certain people, those emotions, you know, they, they can go down that downward spiral. They can let their emotions get the best of them. Um, one of the things you've written about is amygdala hijacking. And I would love if you could just yeah. expand on this. Uh, this is a principle I think is very important. Well, we all have our triggers for getting upset. And whenever something triggers you, uh, you've been hijacked emotionally. I don't use the term amygdala hijack because people who are specialists in the brain say, well, it's actually broader circuitry than that. But at any rate, we've all been hijacked. We're all uh, susceptible. And what's helpful is to know what triggers the hijack. And the more you work with managing the hijack, and actually the more you, uh, the longer you've meditated, there's a dose response uh, phenomena there. The more you do it, the better the benefits. People find they're triggered less often. They're, uh, when they are triggered, they get upset less intensely. And this is really important. They recover more quickly. This is resilience. Resilience is defined as the ability to get back to baseline from the peak of being upset. So all of those things improve over time the more you work on it. And it turns out the meditation has that effect. You write a lot in your book, Altered Traits, which is wonderful, and talk about some of the changes in the mind and the body that, right. that meditation leads to. What were some of the, the really fascinating things you've uncovered around what meditation does to the actual brain? Well, uh, before we get to the brain, let me talk about the genome. This was really surprising. Uh, people in genomic science who, who study, you know, DNA and so on, uh, thought were very skeptical of the idea that any mental exercise could affect genes. But uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Davidson, who I mentioned at the University of Wisconsin, did a study where he measured uh, the genes that create inflammation in the body uh, and had people uh, who experienced meditators do it for a day. And he found that one day of practice uh, turned off the genes that cause chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is that cause for such a range of disorders from diabetes and heart disease to arthritis and asthma and so on. So that was a surprise. And he then brought, uh, I'd have to say, or Olympic level practitioners, people who had up to 62,000 lifetime hours wow. of meditation. That's a lot. Um, and he brought them to the lab and looked at their brains. And one of the things that surprised him was that um, when he said, well, now concentrate or now visualize or now do loving kindness, whatever it was he asked them to do, they did it immediately. They had really extraordinary uh, control over their mental state. That's something you don't find. People who meditate usually will say, I can't do this. You know, my mind's going nuts. That just means you're tuning in. Don't give up. But that's one of the first reactions. It takes people at the beginning time to settle down. But these advanced meditators did it right away. Yes, he also found uh, two other pretty remarkable differences in their brains. One was uh, if, if you take to someone off the street and uh, give them a burn on their skin, there's a device that does this safely, that really hurts, but it's not going to cause a blister quite. Uh, and then you tell them, I'm going to do that in 10 seconds. 
the circuits in their brain for registering the pain light up immediately just at the thought of getting the pain. And then it stays lit up after the pain stops. But with these highly advanced practitioners, they didn't have any uh, apprehension. There's no sign in their brain after being told they're going to get the pain. The only circuits that lit up during the pain were for the physiology, the direct experience of warmth and so on, not the emotional reaction, which is typical of everyone else. And then it stopped when the pain stopped. So that that was something that suggested, oh, these brains are a little different than we're used to. And then the topper was, um, you know, when, when you or I get a really great aha, wow, this is such a great insight, creative, uh, you know, understanding, putting two elements together for the first time that really is useful and applicable. That's the definition of creative act. Uh, we get what's called a high intensity gamma wave for about up to 30 seconds. Or when you have a very vivid memory of, uh, you know, I'm biting into a peach and the smell and the taste and the sound and the crunch and you get that same hit for 30 seconds. But then we ordinarily don't see that EEG wave, except in these practitioners. They seem to have it as part of their resting EEG, which suggests a very different orientation toward experience. So these were some of the findings I thought, hmm, that's so interesting. I, I'm not sure if you've put your brain underneath any of these testing devices, but do you feel you've been in extended periods where that gamma wave um, is staying present? I'm not sure. I couldn't say. <laughs> Just intrigued because I, I know you've put in quite a, a number of hours over all the years uh, with what you're doing. One of the other fascinating things that, that you brought up in your research is actually the science of moods. And I think this is really impactful because we were talking a lot about team dynamics. Do you, do you know what I'm referencing here around different people's moods and how they affect groups? Well, yeah, this is really important to understand that emotions are contagious in a team, in a group, and they're most powerfully contagious from the person in the room who has the highest status. It's typically the leader. People pay most attention to that person and put most importance on what that person says or does. And it turns out, for example, that on a team, if a team leader is in a really upbeat mood, people on the team catch that mood, performance goes up. If the leader of a team is bummed out, angry, anxious, whatever, people on the team catch that mood, performance goes down. So what that says is that the emotions of a leader are part of the toolkit of leadership. If you, if you know how to manage your own emotions uh, and you understand how to use them, it can be very powerful. It, it seems like there, there's something even even more here because I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in your book. You even mentioned that women's menstrual cycles will, will synchronize based on the essential emotional leader of that group. Is that correct too? Uh, yeah, I don't know that it has to do with leadership in that instance, but uh, it, it, biological rhythms tend to go in sync when people become close associates. Uh, and I think that might explain the phenomenon you're talking about. I don't know that it happens to every biological marker, heart rate, blood pressure, and so on. But it's definitely true that, for example, if you're a patient in a hospital and uh, a nurse comes in who is very kind of distant, aloof, and bossy, it has one impact on your physiology, 
But if a nurse comes in who's very concerned, very caring, and very warm, it has quite the opposite effect. I'm wondering about just the impact of some of the people you've seen. I mean, you've studied and been with some of the great Sufis, some of the great yogis, some of the great meditators of all time. What is one of the more astounding things you've seen or felt being in their presence? Uh, I think this is an interesting combination, an intriguing combination of uh, kind of equanimity, equanimity in the sense that they don't want anything for themselves. They don't want anything from you <laughs> with uh, loving kindness. They care about you, but they don't want anything from you. That's a little bit unusual in the world today. Have you seen just you're spending time with people like this, that there's that, that impact, that, that rub off effect? Where I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know if it rubs off, but uh, I think it does while you're in the person's presence. I remember there's a friend of mine, Larry Brilliant, who was with an old yogi, Neem Koli Baba, that I uh, was lucky enough to meet early on in my trip over there. And Larry, who wrote a wonderful book called Sometimes Brilliant, He's an MD and he became part of the team that eradicated smallpox around the world. But anyway, Larry said, the miracle of love with Ninkroli Baba wasn't that he loved us or we loved him. It was that we loved each other hmm. while we were with him. So I think there is that. But I think it's more uh, aspirational because you're not, if you're lucky enough to spend all the time you have with a person like that, then you're within that uh, radius of whatever is they're projecting. But ordinarily, you're just on your own. And when you're on your own, there's the question of who or what would you like to become? And if you have in mind a person like that, I think it helps you uh, aspire toward those qualities. So thinking about about the future from a positive state, it's kind of that that, that we're being pulled towards the potential there. Yes, I I, I don't know that it has to do with uh, the future so much as just our own quality of being. Hmm. What would we like to be like? And not just in the future, now, yeah. you know, in the next instant when we're talking to someone in our family, whatever. Yeah, essentially by showing up in the current moment in that way, by default, you live your life that way, you'd end up that at a future state. For, for you, though, I'm actually intrigued how you think about your work, work moving forward. Well, as I said, I've just turned in a book uh, that ties together, you know, about 25 years of research on emotional intelligence. And it, it I'm happy about the book because it shows that um, a hunch I had 25 years ago actually was true. The hunch was that emotional intelligence matters and the data is just uh, overwhelming now. The other thing in the book I'm turning to uh, is a, a kind of, uh, not a memoir exactly, but you know, here I was a guy with a scientific background getting into a spiritual realm with some skepticism, to tell you the truth. And how uh, the sciences mattered in my own thinking about that, and how the practices and, and people I met in that realm uh, made a difference in my life. So that's the next thing I want to do. And I actually see the emotional intelligence work 
as part and parcel of this, because I think the elements of emotional intelligence, that self-awareness, managing your turbulent feelings, empathy, and so on, um, are part of a spectrum which could go, if you wanted, into a spiritual realm, or you can apply them in business, you can apply them in your private life. Uh, it, it's just a, a universe. These are universals of human nature that really matter. I'm wondering for you mentioning the early days being a skeptic, then transitioning more to spiritual. Is there something that you believe today that yourself 25, 30 years ago couldn't have ever imagined believing? Well, uh, I suspect strongly now that it's possible to uh, learn how to overcome the wiring of the brain and to change that wiring through what's called neuroplasticity, which simply says the more you practice something, the stronger the circuitry that supported become. And when I started out, we didn't even know about neuroplasticity. This is a new idea in neuroscience, relatively speaking. So it was kind of inexplicable uh, when I would encounter someone, say, on that first trip to India, who was uh, who really had kind of deconstructed their uh, needy self, didn't need anything from you, and who was who actually cared about you. Who, you know, how did they get that way? I couldn't figure it out. There was, there was nothing in the psychology of the day, or this neuroscience of the day. In fact, there was no neuroscience in those days uh, that explained it. And now I can see, yes, I, I think that does make sense. Something I, that I was just really intrigued by in, in your latest book is around the three speed limits. Today, it seems there, there's, this, there's this restless energy. And so in the three speed limits, you're saying there's the physical speed, the mental speed limit, and the feeling or energetic speed limit. Can, can you expand on this? Because I feel like I, I kind of get it, get a grasp of it, but I, I want to go deeper because I can feel internally this is really important and I need to get, need to understand this more. Yeah, this comes from my co-author, Sokni Rinpoche, comes out of the Tibetan tradition. The idea uh, that there are internal speeds, the three you mentioned, uh, and that modern life pitches us into speeding being much more speedy than is good for us. Uh, and uh, this gets into a phenomena that is understood in Asian traditions, like acupuncture and so on, but little known in the West, which is that there is a kind of a subtle energy body that matters. And it doesn't track with modern physiology, but the speediness you mentioned is at this level, and it determines how quickly we are thought we're thinking like I've got this thought and that thought, and this idea and that plan, and da, 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 on and on and on. Our, our daily to-do list and beyond, uh, and the rate at which we expect ourselves to accomplish all of this. Uh, and in modern life, it was particularly striking for Sogni because he grew up in a kind of back pocket of Nepal, where there was no electricity, there was no plumbing, there was no speediness. It was just life at its natural organic pace and a lot of nature. And when he came to the West, I think for him, it was a little shocking at how speedy everybody was. And he saw immediately that it'd be very helpful for people to slow down and find their natural speed limit, their natural rate, instead of driving themselves constantly to do more and faster and, and faster and faster. How would you talk through a leader of an organization 
who is saying, but I've got shareholders here. I've got people who are relying on this constant speed and energy. Um, I'm not saying that's the healthy way to go, but I'm just wondering what, what you're thinking about when you come into contact with people like that. Well, I don't think a person needs to be a CEO necessarily. I think it's yeah, I was just using that as an example. Yeah, Yeah, there's a a natural state to to push harder. I would say uh, the the research actually shows, oddly enough, that if you're calm and clear, you will do whatever it is better than if you're upset, distracted, disturbed, and fuzzy. It's just everybody knows this, and speediness makes us. It makes us distracted. It makes us thinking about the next thing while we're doing this thing instead of just being with this thing. So I'd argue that you actually will do whatever it is you need to do, shareholder value, whatever it may be, better if you can focus calmly and clearly on the task at hand. You're one of those people when I talk with, it seems like you know something that others just we're just not attuned to yet. And I'm wondering for you, just, just based on, on these questions, this conversation, what are some of the, the foundational things that we should be thinking about moving forward here? Well, I, th- I think it starts with self-awareness and using that awareness to manage your internal reality, your experience, and then tuning into the other person, the people around you to see where they are and see what you can do for them. And it may be, for example, for a leader, motivating them may be what, what they need, or inspiring them may be what they need, or surfacing attention in a group and handling it. That, that may be where you come out. But I think that the foundational skills are self-awareness, tuning into yourself, and then using that to do what's needed so you can be more clear, more calm at the right speed. Hmm. Say you're, you're in the right speed and you get to do this. You, you can interview anyone dead or alive just to ask endless questions of. <laughs> who, would, who would you love to sit down with, Dr. Goldman? Oh, that's very interesting. Well, the obvious answer is uh, probably Einstein and Gandhi because each of them... Uh, you know, Einstein was a genius and also a great humanitarian. Uh, we remember his genius more than his humanitarian side. And Gandhi had enormous self-discipline while keeping his eye on a very practical political goal. And I'd love to know uh, more from each of them about how they did it. Well, you're someone that I've just appreciated. I've learned so much from over the years. Some of the the books of yours that have really impacted me, Emotional Intelligence, your latest one, Why We Meditate. Uh, I think I might have first got introduced to you from your book, Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence, and then Altered Traits, which we brought up, which brings a lot of the interesting changes in your mind, your brain, and your body. And then, of course, your course, courses at danielgoleman.info. Is there anything else or anywhere else you want to direct the listeners or that they should be aware of to go further um, in exploring your work? Well, I, I have an ongoing uh, conversation with people in a newsletter I do for LinkedIn, uh, which uh, shares with people what intrigues me and my latest thinking. So that's an ongoing way to keep track of what's up. 
could you leave us in in one intriguing thing you've recently come across? Hmm. One intriguing thing. In uh, in the book that I've just finished, which I'll probably share in the newsletter, uh, I was struck by the data that shows uh, how belonging on a team is really important for the functioning of that team and what creates that sense of psychological safety and trust in a team. Uh, and it has to do with a shared self-awareness, with the understanding in a group that it's okay if we surface what our strengths are and what our limits are and we know what they are in other people because then we can be totally honest with each other. It's a wonderful place to wrap this up. But Dr. Daniel Goleman, I can't thank you enough for everything. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.